If you want to be at a reference tonight, you can be in Leviticus 23. You can open your Bible there or navigate on your device. We are looking at a, uh, well, we're going through the feasts of the Lord, the seven feasts that are on the Jewish calendar. We've looked at the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. Passover took place on the 14th day of the Jewish month, Nisan. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the next day, and it ran for several days. They included uh, the Feast of First Fruits. And so in Leviticus 23, 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And so it was on the day after the Sabbath that he would wave this offering and they would uh, accept this sheep. Uh, What Sabbath? Well, it's important to realize that Sabbaths did not only occur on Saturday, on the seventh day. It's true that sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is the Sabbath day. But there are other days that were called Sabbaths. Um, Nisan 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was considered a Sabbath when Israel was to do no work. Israel was to do no work and hold a holy convocation to the Lord. It says that in Leviticus 23, 7. There are four Sabbaths in close proximity to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Sabbath. The last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath, which falls during the seven days of unleavened bread, was a Sabbath. And the weekly Sabbath, which follows the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was a Sabbath. And so you have to wrap your mind around the idea that there were more. The Sabbath day isn't just Saturday. Other uh, days of rest, these holy days, were considered Sabbaths. Of course, there's a Sabbath year uh, as well, and um, you know, it's, it's a, a bigger concept than just a single day. So Passover is Nisan 14. Unleavened bread starts on the 15th. It was on the 16th, which was the morrow after the Sabbath, that the Feast of First Fruits was to be celebrated. The Jewish historian Josephus, he lived in the first century, and he wrote this, but on the second day of unleavened bread, which is the 16th day of the month, They first partake of the fruits of the earth, for before that day they do not touch them. Thus, first fruits was the Sunday following Passover. Barley was the first of the grain crops to ripen. On this day, a sheaf, they call it an omer in the Bible, of barley was waved before the Lord in a prescribed ceremony to mark the 49-day countdown to the Feast of Weeks that we call Pentecost. Uh... This, however, couldn't be done until the children of Israel were in the land because other, until then they didn't have a harvest. And so though they would celebrate Passover and unleavened bread, uh, leaving Egypt and then in the wilderness, they, they never celebrated first fruits until they got into the land and actually had crops of their own. On first fruits, every Jewish male would come to the temple with a second lamb after the Passover lamb. So just a few days earlier, they had brought their Passover offering. And now, uh, on the, a few days later, they would bring a second lamb uh, and the first fruits of the field. The priest, uh, the priest rather, would slay the lamb as the Israelite watched the preparation of his sacrifice. 
This is a sacrifice where it says in, elsewhere in Leviticus, if you were poor, you could offer two turtle doves instead. And when the temple stood in Jerusalem, a sheaf of newly cut barley was presented before the altar on the second day of unleavened bread. Josephus again writes and he says, on the second day of unleavened bread, that is to say the 16th, our people partake of the crops which they have reaped and which have not been touched till then. And esteeming it right first to do homage to God, to whom they owe the abundance of these gifts, they offer to him the first fruits of the barley in the following way. After parching and crushing the little sheaves of ears and purifying the barley for grinding, they bring to the altar an offering for God, and having flung a handful thereof on the altar, they leave the rest for the use of the priests. Thereafter, all are permitted publicly or individually to begin harvest. And so they couldn't really begin their harvest until after they made this offering to the Lord. Now, we're maintaining that Jesus fulfilled each of the spring feasts in his first coming. We know that he rose from the dead uh, on the first day of the week on Sunday, which would be in conjunction with first fruits. The chronology of Jesus' last week on earth is highly controversial. I don't know if anybody ever really got into this or studied this, but um, you've probably visited the Christian website gotquestions.com. How many of you are familiar with that website? Gotquestions.com. It's a good Christian website uh, that cites a lot of uh, Christian authors that we would trust. Um, In their answer to this question, on what day of the week was Jesus crucified, they say this, the Bible does not explicitly state which day of the week Jesus was crucified. The two most widely held views are Friday and Wednesday. Some, however, using a synthesis of both the Friday and Wednesday arguments, argue for Thursday as the day. So why is it so hard to figure out? Well, for one thing, as we noted earlier, holy days were considered Sabbaths, even though they did not fall on a Saturday. And so sometimes you read uh, the word Sabbath and you, you, you assume that it's a Saturday, but it's not. It's a holy day. Another reason there's disagreement is that some chronologies think it's important that Jesus was in the tomb for three full days and nights, whereas others suggest and have biblical arguments for the fact that he only needed to be in the grave a partial day to count as a full day. And yet, um, you know, so people have an argument about that. And there were also competing calendars. We said when we looked at Passover, it was likely in Jesus' time that two different days were available to celebrate the Feast of Passover based on two different calendars that were in use. However, not everyone believes this either. Uh, We like that approach because it allows Jesus to have a Passover meal with his disciples and then still be crucified the next day as the lambs are being slain in the temple. Uh, Otherwise, you have a, a problem with that. And so there's a lot of problems trying to identify the exact chronology of Uh, what we call Holy Week. It hurts my brain to think through each of these possibilities. It really does. Each one of them has pluses and minuses. So the question is, is it important? And the answer to that is, of course it's important, but that doesn't mean it's crucial. (laughs) I'm sorry, Lord. Maybe it is important. It's not uh, crucial. Uh, it's one of those things. It's one of those things we have to accept as unsettleable, which is not a word I found out, but it makes sense. There are some things that you encounter in the Word of God that are important, 
not crucial, and will never be settled this side of eternity. Godly, scholarly men are still in disagreement after centuries, and that means that we're not likely to be the ones that resolve this. And so when I talk about people having different opinions on the calendars and the Sabbath days and all of this, I'm talking about godly men, not, not cults or non-Christians. Godly men who we respect, who take one vein or the other, and they, they can't convince each other who is absolutely right. And so we're never going to solve that problem. What I do think is crucial is that Jesus died on the cross as the Lamb of God just as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed and that he lay in the tomb fulfilling unleavened bread because he had lived a sinless life and his body did not see corruption and then he rose from the dead as the first fruits of the future resurrection and fulfillment of first fruits. And so as that sheaf of barley uh, waved before the Lord indicated a greater harvest to come, So when Jesus rose from the dead, it indicated a greater harvest of souls and those who would live forever with him. The feasts of the Lord tell the story of his redeeming the human race by coming as a man, adding humanity to his deity, to die as the final lamb, having lived an unleavened life, and then he arose from the dead as the first fruits promise of the greater future harvest of souls. First fruits is mentioned a few times in the New Testament. Romans 8.23 says this, We also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The Holy Spirit is called the first fruits of God's work of salvation and recreation in the believer. Elsewhere, the Holy Spirit is called a deposit, which is a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. Warren Wiersbe says the Holy Spirit is described as our engagement ring, a token of the finished work Uh, to come. God the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is a foretaste that they will enjoy many, many more blessings, including living in God's presence forever. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we still groan within ourselves because we're in a body of flesh. We've been redeemed, but our body is in an unredeemed state. Obviously, we're not ready for heaven. If if this is the body I'm taking to heaven, I, I want to talk to somebody, you know. Uh, I, I, need, I need something a lot better than this. I want to upgrade to the, you know, a Tesla or something like that, but you know, something that, that is much. So, so we have the Holy Spirit, and we have God's nature within us. We have a foretaste of heaven, but we're, uh, we're still groaning within ourselves until the final redemption of our body and of the universe. Then 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. Adam represented every future human being when he and Eve decided to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. God told them the consequences of their bad choosing would be death, and death is what followed. Uh, They began to die physically, they uh, were dead spiritually, and had God not intervened, they would have died eternally. They would have been separated from God, but we know he did intervene immediately, 
and come up with his plan of redemption. In Adam all die are four words that summarize the human condition. Why is there disease and disaster and death? Because in Adam all die. It's because of what Adam did and he represented the race of people who would descend from him. That's not fair, you say? Uh, You would have made a better decision? That's probably not true. Uh, But even so, uh, that's the way it is. Adam was our representative, and just by nature of the fact that he and Eve fell into sin and they received, uh, their nature became sinful, now we inherit original sin. Uh, He represented us. But listen, Jesus also represents the entire human race in his decision to obey God. And so just as much as I'm not wanting Adam to represent me, but he does, I do want Jesus to represent me, and he does. And so that's the way God looks at things. He says, Adam, uh, we're all in Adam in that sense. I mean, we all descend from Adam and Eve, and, um, in, and so we're responsible for uh, his choices, as it were. And yet Jesus also, uh, we are in him when we believe him for eternal life, and uh, he represents us, and we go from death to life. So it's a, it's a good deal. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's the only way to go, but it's a good deal nonetheless. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, the word order is important. It lets you know that the resurrection of the human race will occur in stages all at once, or not all at once. It's actually a military word that's used to describe the separation of soldiers into various detachments. This is always a really fascinating subject for Christians. Uh, There seems to be a great deal of confusion about the resurrection from the dead. And uh, even after tonight, after I try to explain it uh, and give it stages, people will come up and say, so let me see if I got this straight. Is this what you're saying? Because it's... we don't really break it down all the time. And so I want to do that a little bit tonight. And it's important because a lot of people get confused, especially about Bible prophecy, from a failure to realize there is not one massive general resurrection at the end of the age. There are theologies out there that teach that all at once, at the end of human history, everyone is going to be raised from the dead, some to eternal life, and some to eternal damnation. And that uh, general resurrection, if you believe that, you're never going to understand the flow of Bible prophecy because that's not what happens. Uh, There is an order to the resurrection, and the resurrection of believers takes place in stages. Not your personal resurrection. When you're raised from the dead, or when you receive your glorified body, it's done. But you might be at a different point in the historical timeline. And so Jesus was the first fruits. We're studying the Feast of First Fruits where they would celebrate the, uh, the first fruits of the harvest. Jesus is called the first fruits. He rose and his resurrection guaranteed that believers in him would rise from the dead. And so we're clear on that. So Jesus rises from the dead, first fruits, Firstborn among many brethren, it means that those who believe in him will also rise from the dead as he did. People had been raised from the dead before Jesus and by Jesus, but not in their eternal resurrection bodies. Jesus was the first to be raised 
glorified. Okay, so Lazarus, Jesus' friend, dies, hanging around in Abraham's bosom, it says, with Abraham and Job and, you know, all these cool guys. And then Jesus shows up and he calls him forth out of the grave. I wouldn't have wanted to come, just between you and me. But he had to because Jesus is God and he comes out of the grave. Comes out of the grave in a probably perfectly healed physical body, but it's still a body like he had four days earlier, only it's not sick anymore. And he died again. We don't know how or when. Um, the Jewish leaders wanted to put him to death so that they didn't have any evidence of his being raised from the dead. But he died again. And so the people Jesus rose from the dead, they, they didn't get raised in a resurrection body or a glorified body. Uh, nobody did until Jesus rose from the dead. And then after him, uh, people will be raised in a glorified body. So he is the first one. So that's number one in order. The next stage, Paul says here, are those who are Christ's at his coming. What coming are we talking about? Because there's at least two different comings of Jesus. His first coming uh, in the Christmas season that we're celebrating and uh, his second coming. But this is another coming. Paul means the coming of Jesus to resurrect and rapture the church, to remove living believers off of the planet prior to the great tribulation. In that stage of the resurrection... That's when the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, and we will always be with the Lord. And so Jesus rose from the dead, glorified bodies, uh, ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then there is going to come, at a certain point in time, what we call the rapture of the church. I like to call it the resurrection and the rapture because in, that's how it's described. Um, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they were confused about these things. And he said, here's what's going to happen. All dead believers of the church age who have been buried, buried at sea, blown to smithereens, burned to death, whatever happened to their body, they're going to be raised from the dead. They're going to receive their spirit, which is in heaven, is going to receive a resurrection body. And then, uh, I mean, it'll happen so fast, you know, it's not like it happens a week later. It happens in conjunction with that. Then Christians who are alive on the earth at that time will immediately be changed and be given their glorified resurrection bodies. And so that is the next stage, the next moment in the resurrection. So Jesus is the first fruits, and then those that are Christ's at his coming to rapture the church. The rapture is always presented as imminent, and so we're always living in anticipation of the rapture. So what comes next? Well, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says this. He says, the Old Testament saints are not raised, according to Daniel 12.1, until after the great tribulation period when they are raised to enter the kingdom here on this earth. Then you have the resurrection of the tribulation saints, and that ends the first resurrection. You have, therefore, three definite groups in these stages, the church, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation saints. And so um, if you start thinking this through, you think, okay, so Jesus rose from the dead, and then the church is raised from the dead. What, what about these poor Old Testament saints? Daniel 12.1 says that they're going to be raised to enjoy the kingdom of heaven on earth, the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, but there will also be saints from the tribulation period who were killed 
who need to be raised from the dead. And at that time, you have the end of what is called the first resurrection. Uh, we'll talk about that again in just a second. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the further end Paul was talking about leaps forward past the tribulation to the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth that follows the tribulation. And although Satan leads a great rebellion against the Lord, there are going to be human believers left who need to receive their resurrection bodies. After all that history, every believer from every age and era will have been raised and be in their glorified bodies that are fit for eternity. You can read about this moment in the Revelation chapter 20, and there you find that another resurrection will take place as well. All non-believers from throughout time will be raised and judged. Rejectors of God's grace, they'll be cast alive into the lake of fire for eternity. Now, the resurrection of believers takes place in stages, like I said. Jesus first, then the church, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints, saints at the end of the millennium, okay? And then, uh, and obviously that takes a, a great deal of time. We're a couple of thousand years out from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, waiting for the next detachment. And then once the church is, is taken to heaven, it'll be another uh, seven years before the tribulation is over and the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints are raised. So it takes place over a long period of time. Um, and then all the believers are raised. Non-believers, all non-believers from all history are, ra are raised all at once in a general resurrection of the damned. And, and that's where we get this idea of the general resurrection, but it's only non-believers. The resurrection of non-believers to eternal, eternal punishment happens all at once, and it's called the second resurrection. So you see how this gets confusing. People, the Bible calls it the first resurrection, so you think it must happen all at once, but no. The first resurrection takes place over thousands of years in particular stages at points in time. The second resurrection is the resurrection of those who are lost. That does take place all at once. It happens at the great white throne judgment. Uh, I'm going to read this long passage from the Revelation that describes it. Uh, it started in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God in Christ and shall reign with him. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so this is the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. So we're living in the church age right now. We believe that at the time of the resurrection and rapture of the church, somewhere in conjunction with that, then the tribulation will begin for seven years. 
Jesus returns in his second coming at the end of that, and he establishes a 1,000-year reign on the earth, also called the kingdom of God or the millennial kingdom. Millianum means 1,000 years in Latin, millennial kingdom. Remarkably, even though Jesus is on the earth physically reigning and we're there with him ruling and reigning in glorified bodies, as are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, human beings who are born during that time will still be led in a rebellion against God by Satan when he is led out of his prison. And at that time, it's easily dealt with. Fire comes out of heaven. And then God is done with this timeline that started with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then it will end at that point. And um, all the believers from all of those ages will have been raised from the dead and be in glorified bodies, having gone through those various stages. And then all of the dead non-believers from all that history, from the time of Adam and Eve forward, they will all be raised at once in one general resurrection called the second uh, death uh, or the second resurrection and they'll be judged God will it says that he'll open the books and he'll look at their works and all of their works will be deficient because uh, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone not by works that any man should boast but they're going to receive a resurrection body that is fit to be uh, punished for eternity in the lake burning with fire and so that's that's uh, all that first fruits is suggesting to us as Christians. Uh, it suggests the resurrection of Jesus and these resurrections that are guaranteed because of it. And so, you know, distill that down into something that's palatable for us tonight. You're going to live forever in a great body. It's a body that's going to be like Jesus' body, because the scripture says we'll be like him, we'll awaken his likeness. We don't know a lot about his body. Uh, but we know that he appeared and disappeared. We know that it's a body that is fit for heaven. It can hang out on the earth. He can be in heaven. It would be in the presence of God. Um, you, you, there's, there'll be no more tears. Not one tear will ever be shed in heaven. It, it's not going to be a place where you can cry at all. Uh, it'll be perfect. Seems like we can eat in heaven because there's a tree there that bears fruit. Every month a different uh, fruit. Um, you probably won't have to eat. I doubt that there will be any uh, energy loss or anything like that. Uh, it, you know, and so we, we kind of put this together. But you, you're going to be raised from the dead. Uh, if your body's put in the ground in a coffin, if you're cremated, if you're lost at sea, if you're blown to bits, none of that matters. God's going to bring a body together that's, that's not the same body that you have right now. It's going to be a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 says it's like a seed. The seed has some connection to the plant, but um, it, it's not the same. And so your body will be recognizable because we know that when uh, Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah. How did they know? Did they have Moses and Elijah trading cards? Or, you know, they did portraitures. They didn't. Those guys were thousands of years removed from Moses and Elijah. And yet, Peter, James, and John knew immediately that it was Moses and Elijah. They probably didn't have name tags. I don't think they wear lanyards in heaven or anything like that. You know, they, they just knew them. And so you're going to know people, and they're going to know you. And so there's a, there's a lot of things that we don't know about heaven and about our bodies. There's a lot of things that we do know. And, and the thing that you know tonight, if, if there's one thing you take from this, 
Because Jesus rose from the dead, so will you if you're a Christian. But you know what? If you're not a Christian, you're also going to be raised from the dead, but it's to face judgment. And so make sure that you've made your peace with Jesus Christ. Let his spirit draw you into a relationship with him where he forgives your sins and gives you eternal life. Amen?